We are I. Did you hear that? Yes, they do that. I they started doing it like a week or so ago, I think. At oh. least on my end. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, I've actually, apparently I'm not on Zoom enough these days. I <laughs> for some reason like Skype and use um um Instagram uh, and WhatsApp video messaging like quite a bit, not for recording podcasts and stuff, but just for uh like video messaging and stuff. And I okay. I've heard of that, but I wonder if they do that to alert everybody to put their pants on with how many people get caught with their pants off on Zoom calls now. I think they probably had to. Yeah. And and maybe there have been complaints from people that, you know, you have to sign a waiver usually if you're shown, like if they take footage of you or whatever. So maybe that's their way of kind of covering themselves. I think they kind of came up with a better sounding voice than that. Those pretty <laughs> sounding. It's like the, the digital voices of 15 years ago. Yes, it was. <laughs> um, I'm going to throw all this in at the beginning because I don't like to edit anything. Ever, so it's just candid conversation. So be prepared that that's going to be at the beginning of this podcast. Okay. This okay. Um, so I sent you this list a couple of weeks ago of what you describe as like half of your second book. Um, once you write your book on functional mushrooms and everything, then we'll talk about that. Oh, right. Yeah. People have been giving me ideas ever since you asked me that I've had several people come in and ask me what the next book is on and give me some suggestions. Yeah, there you go. I'm just going to (laughs) keep plugging it all the time. I'm just going to randomly keep throwing it out there. But, um, one of the first things I wanted to talk about is the, uh, the five spirits. So I'm not going to butcher them because I'm not going to say them right anyway, but um, dive into them. I don't know if you want to go five of them like at the beginning, just like the names of them, and then we can break them into like each subtopic after that. Um, However you want to design it. I just, I want to know. Okay. So the five spirits are um, basically the way the Chinese broke down the different aspects of our mental and emotional experience in our bodies. So we know that the mind and the body are not just intimately connected, but are one thing as we exist in our physical form. And the, um, the way that the mind manifests in the body was kind of laid out in terms of these wushan or five spirits. And so the way the Chinese describe it are that we have these five aspects to our mental and emotional um, part of ourselves. And these five aspects actually anchor into physical organs. So they anchor into five of the yin organs or the solid organs in the body. And these organs or the area of these organs is responsible for processing the emotion that is associated with that spirit that anchors into the tissue in that part of the body. And so it's like a, a, twofold thing. So that part of the body helps us to process the emotion associated with that spirit, or that spirit can become unsettled if there is unresolved um, energy or residue from emotions that are unprocessed. Uh, they can, the, the spirits can become unsettled in that part of the body. 
And so what that means is that we can become mentally restless in the area that pertains to that part of the body. So in a sense, it's the way people have come to um, understand the chakras or the chakras in, in Western society. So each of the energy centers of the body has specific um, psycho-spiritual characteristics that influence our psychology, um, our biology, and our um, basically how we feel inside our skin. And that's kind of how the Wushan or the five spirits operate from the Taoist point of view, which ends up being part of the Chinese medicine uh, foundational teachings. And so the five spirits are the Po or the, the spirit, it's P-O, but it's pronounced Po. It's the spirit that's associated with the lung tissue or with the lungs or with the area of the body that houses the lungs and it um, influences the lungs and the skin. Um, the paw is, a, it's, the, it's the spirit, it's the energetic that circulates just underneath the skin. And if someone is experiencing a lot of sensitivity or if they're in a sympathetic state or in a, in a fight or flight state, then their paw is gonna to circulate toward the surface of their skin more because it's going to be in a protective mode. It's kind of like your hackles are up when, when you're in fight or flight, you're very alert, you're very aware, you're very sensitive to um, touch stimuli and other stimuli. And so your awareness kind of goes up and out in a protective mode. And so the paw is also the spirit that is associated with um, the body. So it's very protective of the physical body. And the paw is said to not leave the body when the body dies. So when somebody dies, their body is still animated with this aspect of consciousness. It's a very sort of low level aspect of consciousness in the sense that it doesn't need to go with the soul because for every new body has its own individual paw. And so, this particular spirit is responsible for processing grief. So this spirit allows us to feel grief and sadness and anything on the spectrum of grief or sadness, anything at all that you can feel that has any hint of grief or sadness associated with it. That means that it's, there's a, the lung chi is having to work a little bit harder because it is responsible for us helping us to process that grief or sadness. Unresolved grief or sadness stays sort of locked in that part of the body. And the way Dr. Laud, Dr. Basant Laud, who's a very famous Ayurvedic doctor from India who lives in um, New Mexico, the way he describes um, the emotions in the body is that there's an emotional res residue that accumulates in the, the actual physical tissues and it crystallizes and it's always there. So if there's unresolved emotional trauma of any kind, then it actually stays as a physical byproduct in the system somewhere. And it can be called AMA or toxins until it gets processed and resolved. And um, Candace Pert, uh, I think she's a neurobiologist or is a neurobiologist, and she wrote a book several years ago 
called Molecules of Emotion. And she talks about how in order for us to be able to physically experience an emotion, the, the brain secretes chemicals into the body, neurotransmitters that go to, to specific cells and like activate certain functions inside the cells or inside the body that actually give us that visceral response or give us that heartfelt response. And so there is that physical component to our emotional experience. So when Dr. Lott calls the, the molecules of emotion crystallized, unresolved um, emotions, it's a very literal thing that he's talking about. And the Chinese believe this too, that there is actual physical substance that arises as a result of unresolved experiences. And so the lungs are responsible for processing grief and they are governed by the pa or that specific spirit. And if, you know, if you look at any time, like it happens so often that somebody that we're close to passes and we end up with some kind of respiratory distress. And that, um, that can be tied into the amount of like heavy grief that comes up in that moment. And we know, especially in terms of grief, it's easier to look at when we're in a, a grief type place. It's easier to look at what else it reminds us of, like other things that make us feel that way start to come up very easily and very much into our conscious awareness. Other times that we experienced a similar um, grieving process. And so it's like all that stuff is always there. And breathing is one of the best ways, obviously, that we can help our bodies to process grief. And um, so breathing deeply helps to move the chi in the whole body. And it moves the diaphragm, which compresses all the organs in the body. It really helps to open up and oxygenate the lungs and get toxins out of the body. So um, deep breathing is really helpful for um, processing grief and keeping the paw balanced and happy and um, in a more and keeping the body in a more parasympathetic state. So when we breathe deeply, the diaphragm massages the vagus nerve, which helps us feel more in that rest and digest state versus the fight or flight state. And so you can see how all of this information ties together from these different traditions are all talking about the same kind of thing. So the paw is the spirit that animates the lungs. The shen. Oh, hold on, hold on. My, yeah, my brain has just been like exploding this whole time. <laughs> I just wanted to let you get, I just didn't want to interrupt you. Um, so I, I think like, would it be fair to say like an easily digestible um, transfer for most people? Because this is something that like a lot of people have heard before. So I, I know there's a narrative out there wanting to discredit um, an Eastern methodology, or Eastern way of thinking, saying like, you know, like, oh, well, how can there be molecules flowing around in my body that's going to affect these things? But as we know, like with stress, there is like a stress hormone that's released you know, through like cortisol, like we know that through when we feel things, our body is going to react. And I think that everybody can agree that our body is going to release cortisol levels when our stress level goes up, you know? So like, if we believe that, like, I think it's kind of like the more we can make these parallels with stuff that is very common knowledge, it would help people bring a little bit more credibility to like 
the systems along the way. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's so important. I was just talking about this in my meditation group the other day because um, we went over the five spirits and we were talking about how, like what medicine would look like if Western practitioners were actually trained, seriously trained in the foundations of Eastern medicine. Not that they need to learn all the formulas and all of that, but simply the worldview that purports that we are intimately a part of the rest of nature, that we are completely interconnected whole beings, that there is no separation like between the mind and the body and spirit, between the different emotions. Like you can tap into different aspects of yourself and get like the, the essence of the vibe that resides there, whether you're tapping into your physical body or your mind and your thinking or your emotions and how you feel, you can, you can tap into all of those things, your wisdom body or where your compassion comes from and your insight and your um, sort of higher self wisdom. Um, those things, you can get the vibe of each one of those separately, but they are all connected and totally interdependent upon one another. And so if, if that was really emphasized in Western medical training, it would make such a difference in the way patients are approached and patient care um, in, uh, in end of life treatment, palliative care, everything makes a difference with everything. Yeah, you know, and I think the one thing that I think a lot about all the time, and this is a reoccurring conversation I have with a lot of people, is that there is this massive disconnect with us in Western culture where we stopped listening to ourselves intuitively and listen only to our doctor. It's just like, you know, I know I'm going to go to my doctors, they know best, they went through all these years of school, like, you know, don't self-diagnose, you know, like, even when you know what's wrong, it's like, here, take these pills or take it and like, do this, but like, I think when you have like a little bit more of an Eastern approach to or like what you're saying here, it's like, yes, I do feel like when I have grief, I feel heavy in my chest. And I think a lot of people understand that too, where it's like, that's something probably everybody's heard multiple times from a plethora of different people throughout their life, depending on how old you are. But like everybody, like, I feel really heavy in my chest or, you know, like I know from an athletic standpoint that... I couldn't figure out why some mornings my cardiovascular performance was so low when I would play squash or, you know, like where I go for a run or like it was just so much more of like, it felt so much more taxing. But then I was doing some research and I found out that like um, when you are tired, like amount of sleep or how well rested. So again, not amount of sleep, but how well rested you feel is a direct correlation to the performance um, of your cardiovascular system, you know, in your lungs. Um, but then I'm just like, well, when I'm tired, I feel a little bit more depressed. I think everybody does. Like, there's not too many people who feel tired and ecstatic. Like, it's just, it's, they're not parallel. So when you talk about these things that people are willing to be able to see the parallels between all these and be like, I have heard something similar to like that for just that are like, you know, you could call them old wives tales or whatever you want. But like, when we start to bring that more intuitive experience back into like our knowledge base, it's like, yeah, there is all of these immediate transfers to everything that you just said, if we're willing to be able to look and search for them. Right. Yeah. All right. What's next? We got Shen, S-H-E-N. Yeah. yeah. So the Shen is the spirit of the heart. And 
So it's called Wushan or five spirits, but the spirit of the heart is sort of the governor of all the other spirits. If any of the spirits is unsettled, the Shen of the heart becomes unsettled. And we monitor someone's Shen or spirit, their overall spirit, the collection of all aspects of their consciousness and mental emotional selves by the quality of their gaze of their eyes. So you can look in someone's eyes and you can tell if they're tired. You can tell if they're grieving. You can tell if they're angry. You can tell if they're, uh, if they have some kind of a mental illness and they're having an acute moment with it. Like you can tell by body language, but really you can tell by looking in the eyes. And so well, that's, that's why they always say, you know, like the eyes are the gateway to the soul. Exactly. Right? And soul and spirit are often used interchangeably. Um, so yes, so the Shen is, is, it, it kind of fulges through the eyes and, um, like many great wise teachers, they talk about that twinkly eye they have, or the, the way they're able to look through a person and it's like, they can see everything about you. Like that is a really strong Shen. And so, um, the Shen of the heart is responsible for us experiencing joy and processing joy and all of the emotions that are experienced in the body are meant to be temporary so there's a specific state of being that we're kind of supposed to be underlying all of that and that these emotions are just like passing storms or the weather changing right they're just they're, they're there and then we process it and then it moves along and then the next one comes and then it moves. The problem is that so many of us get stuck in one thing. And so especially um, there are a lot of people that believe that we're supposed to be happy um, all the time, that being spiritually enlightened or, or aware um, or this phrase I hate woke means that you're, you're happy all the time. And that's not the case, right? And so um, reality is that if you can be centered and present and okay with what's happening, despite the circumstances, despite the emotions it evokes in you, then that is more of a healthy response than saying, I'm happy all the time. And so yeah, the whole like power of positive thinking movement, like morphed into this, like, beast of you have to be happy all the time like every second all day and it drives me nuts I talk about that with people all the time too it's That's like good. we would not have all of these other emotions if we were only supposed to be happy all the time and like what does that even mean like do you actually like and as we know when we have something readily available in our life we will always start to devalue that. It just seems like something we do as human beings. If you're strong, you want to be a little bit stronger. If you have money, you want a little bit more money. If you're happy, you want to be a little bit happier. You know, so like, what is it? What would it mean? We would always be chasing happiness instead of trying to find value in the emotional experience and just allowing ourselves to be able to feel what we feel at that time and dealing with it in real time instead of being like, I shouldn't feel this way. I have to find a way to be able to feel happy. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and so that, that ask that um, power positive thinking thing that you just talked about, that's actually harmful to the heart shun because 
it's not healthy for that to be sustained and it can actually injure the shen. It can then put a damper on the entire shen, all of the shen. It can, so if we're trying to suppress everything else because we're attempting to be happy or joyful in every moment, it's just, it's gonna be harmful for us in the long run, we know that. So- And then not even learning it and like with that too, like a point that I always try to make clear, but it's like, you never learn how to be able to deal with other emotions. If you're always trying to curb them, stop them and revert back to being happy, you never, it's like understanding risk management. Like you have to fall off the standing on top of the monkey bars when you're a kid to realize that you probably shouldn't stand on top of the monkey bars or you might break your leg. Or, you know, like there's a certain part of like risk management that we just need to like appreciate and go through. And it's like that with every single emotion, like we need to be able to go through those emotions to learn how to deal with them in a healthy way instead of just, again, like reverting back to another emotion that we overvalue instead of just like maybe taking a more neutral stance to all of them and just saying, you know, like, why do I feel this way? Or like, how are we going to work through this moment? Because it's not always going to be this way. But, you know, like you said, like we're a, we're a byproduct now of these hyper mono environments. That it's like, if you are depressed, it's actually really easy to stay depressed because we just have too many algorithms of life, like just flowing information into us based on how you pick up your phone. Like I was talking to somebody on the phone the other day. Oh, I can't remember what it was. And then all the ads started popping up on, on my feeds. And I'm like, is that real? Like, cause I'm like, I know I didn't Google any of that stuff. And I literally just got the phone like a couple hours ago. And I'm getting all these, I'm like, is that where it's at? Then it makes me realize in situations like this, as we're talking, like when you say it, it's like, it's easy to stay trapped in these emotional environments and not get out of them, you know, like, because we do that to ourselves, like, we, yeah. like there's all these digital systems around us that kind of keep us there. It takes a really strong individual to be able to look past that, whether it's positive, negative, or neutral, and just say like, what else is out there? It's mm-hmm. true. Yeah. All right. We got why I, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Ye. Okay. So the ye is often translated as intellect, which connotates to me that there is an aspect of the ye spirit that is under our conscious control. So usually when we use the, the word mental, we that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a control there. It, it kind of encompasses all of our cognitive ability but um and some behavioral ability but when it comes to the word intellect it usually means something it's kind of like a tear up from the word mental and it and it usually means that we're we use our intellect so we're, we choose to engage in that aspect of our consciousness and so it's translated, he is translated as intellect, but I also like to look at it as conscience. And those are two very different words. But the reason I like to look at it as conscience is because the word ye is associated with the spleen. So all of these sort of ephemeral um, things we're talking about, these spirits, they're anchored into the physical tissue and each one is anchored and rooted in an intricate part of the tissue that it's associated with. So the yi 
is associated with the spleen. And so you say spleen and Westerners go, oh, so what? I, you know, I have an, an aunt who doesn't have her spleen and we don't really need her spleen. It doesn't really do much, but it does. And in Chinese medicine, the spleen is responsible for the functioning of the spleen, some of the stomach functioning, some of the pancreatic functioning, small intestine. So the, the um, concept of spleen in Chinese medicine is very rich and it incorporates all of the aspects of transformation that occur in the digestive tract and also in the mind and the thinking and our ability to digest concepts and experiences. And so the yi spirit is anchored into the spleen chi, is anchored into the spleen organ. And it's responsible for us experiencing um, worry. And it's injured. The yi is injured by overthinking, which means that the spleen is injured by overthinking, which means that the functions that are associated with the spleen any transportation or transformation of food and fluids or thoughts or emotions is hampered by overthinking and over worrying. And another thing that's associated with worry is the experience of guilt and the experience of shame. And so if we're harboring guilt or shame, that's like a hidden form of worry. It's like even beneath the, the constant nagging worries that usually we're aware of. And that is something that really injures the spleen chi and that whole dynamic. And so the yi is a very important spirit in that if, if there is overthinking, even if somebody's in school and they're studying too much, that can injure the spleen chi and it can create ama or toxins in the system because things aren't getting digested properly. It can also create suppressed emotions and therefore harm other spirits in the body and affect other organ systems and the, and their chi function. Well, you can see that ramping up, right? Where it's like the, you know, with like the spleen, then you're like, you're overthinking and there's a direct correlation between the spleen and the stomach. Then when people are overthinking, their anxiety usually gets a lot higher. Then when their anxiety usually gets a lot higher, then they get, you know, like an upset stomach or they have like digestive problems or like they just feel nauseous in the stomach. You know, then the anxiety goes up and then the depression goes up and then it's harder to breathe. So like yep. where you talk about like the interconnectedness of all this, like again, if you're really just to kind of take a really objective view, you can see how all these things are interconnected. And, you know, where we have, you know, think of like how many people are are overthinking now it's really easy to be able to do it we're so inundated with information and processing but the worst thing is when you said that you know with studying although i'm like how many people or how many children because you know obviously like most of these kids in like university are still kind of children when you look at the amount of years that they've had on this planet that you know they're stacking caffeine or monster energy drinks that are filled with like caffeine and sugar and you know, like all these things, or even worse now, like Adderall, you know, people are popping Adderall, like candy, you know, to be able to study longer, or work more and all that kind of stuff. So like you're overthinking and now you're, you know, you're inducing yeah. this drug like state, you know, mm -hmm. putting all these stimulants in your body to be able to perpetuate that. And it's just like, I just see like the snowball going, just increasing yeah. all the time. Right. Right. And an interesting thing, it says in the Chiraka Samhita, and you mentioned the cortisol and that obviously leads to weight gain around the abdomen. 
and um, weight gain in general. And so um, in the Charaka Samhita, it says that like we have Bada Pitta and Kapha and as the, the doshas are kind of the physiological things that can kind of go awry that give us trouble in our bodies. And so we have Vata, which is associated with the nervous system and with usually a lean body type. We have Pitta that's associated with more of an athletic body type and that and associated with transformation, which is the spleen. And then we also have Kapha, which is associated with the structure and the stability in the system. And usually people just assume if someone's overweight, that it means they have a kapha imbalance. But in the Charaka Samhita, it states that the root of many weight gain imbalances is actually in vata. It comes from this over-worrying, overthinking, nervousness, and whether that compels somebody to eat more or compels them um, to binge and purge even, and messes up the metabolism, makes the body hold on to weight because the body gets used to that pattern, or it's because of cortisol production. It doesn't matter, right? The root of it is the vata. Um, and so, and the vata, it's so, and so the spleen and that worry is, it's like a really huge thing. And so if you look at your tongue in the mirror and you see that you have teeth marks on the edges of their tongue, of the tongue, that indicates that there's a spleen sheet deficiency. Oh, man, as soon as he said that, I'm like 100% have that. My dentist even was the one who like turned it up. And his explanation was because it's like from like working out and being in high stress environments, you don't realize but like you're pushing your tongue against your teeth. Yeah, but why are you doing that? It's a form of tension. Yeah, but I'm like, yeah, I agree. But then when I looked at him, I'm like, you know, we're friends like outside of this professional environment. And I'm like, but I'm like, you're full of shit. I'm like, there's no way that I'm pushing my tongue that hard against the yeah. back of my teeth for that long that I'd have a permanent like impression of like, like my teeth and my tongue. I'm like, that doesn't even, my, my logical brain can even, you know, make sense of something like that. So yeah, I know it's, it's interesting to see. I like through a conversation, you hear these things, you're like, yeah, you know, I'm like, I've always kind of wondered because I know a lot of people, you know, who are like that. And a lot of people who are in, you know, like kind of like higher stress or athletic based environments always seem like they have like a, a teeth imprint um, around the outside of their tongue. And part of that is because there's a little bit of yang deficiency too. So the, the spleen is nourished by the yang chi of the kidneys. And worry is sort of a byproduct of fear. And so that brings us to another spirit, which is the jur, which is translated as will. And that's associated with the kidneys. How do you spell that one? Z-H-I. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I got that one. Yeah. It doesn't sound like it's spelled. No, not at most, all. I'm like, I don't think I'm like, there might be six spirits here, but yeah, no. No, no, okay. that's most pinyin. A lot of the pinyin words don't, don't sound like they're spelled. Like it's yin and yang, not yin and yang. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that stuff. So in the same yeah, This is that, why I didn't want to pronounce them at the beginning. I'm just not like, I'm butchering them even after you say them. So. <laughs> Yeah. So the opinion is, so it's jur and it's translated as will. And it's, it's not like the will, like the will to keep going or the will to get through your workout or the will to stay on a diet. It's your, it's almost like your Dharma. It's like your will, like, do you have the fortitude 
of in the centeredness and confidence in your own self to move forward on your own personal path, regardless of what anybody else says, regardless of what you're pushed into doing from society or your family or whatever, or what you're thinking, old tapes playing in your head, somebody else's tapes playing in your head. Do you have the strength of essence to do what you know you're guided to do in this lifetime? That's Jer, that's will. And so the will is anchored into the kidneys and the kidneys are responsible for um, allowing us to feel fear. And so the kidneys and the adrenals are connected. And of course, when we feel fear, the adrenals are stimulated. So the, the jur is anchored into the kidneys, which are responsible for allowing us to feel fear and for processing fear. So if there is an overabundance of fear state in someone's body chronically, like let's say for the last, you know, almost two years now <laughs> with COVID, then it's going to tax the kidney energy. And when that happens, the kidneys become deficient. And then the kidney deficiency usually results in a spleen chi deficiency because the spleen relies on the yang or the force and energy and heat and combustion from the kidney yang to fuel its fire of transformation. And so oftentimes, especially the older we get, if there's a spleen chi deficiency, it's rooted into a kidney deficiency. And so, um, so that's, that's the juror. And then that's really yeah. interesting, you know, because what, what makes me think when you, when you were talking there is that, um, like, Everybody always like, well, not everybody and not always dislike when I say that. Um, there's been a lot of times through my life that people have called me stubborn. And yeah, I always like I used to think of it like as negative before because it always has this negative connotation in life, like, oh, you know, you don't want to be stubborn or this person's stubborn. But as I've got older, especially with I, I would say maybe in the last like four or five years, I started to question that in my own mind not really hearing it as much now what I did like in the past, but I'm like, what's wrong with liking what you like or what's wrong with believing in what you believe in? Like I could, if I was Christian, I could easily call a Muslim stubborn because they just simply believe in something different than me. Like I could be um, a vegan talking to a carnivore and I'd be like, you're stubborn because you believe in something different than me. Like, but it's really just like if, you know, if you can back it up with a why, and that's always like my thing. I'm like, take a strong stance. But when I ask you why you take that stance, be able to explain it. Don't just say because, because then I know that it's not authentic to you. Like it's not a position you stand on. It's a platform that's been built for you. And you don't really know what the foundation is like on it because it's not actually how you feel. And, but I'm like, the one thing that I know is like, I really enjoy the things that I do. And I really enjoy thinking about the things that I think or like living my life a certain way, which may not be for everybody. Like, even when I talk about like, when people say they, you know, like, how can you always get up at like four or four o'clock in the morning? You know, they're like, you know, yet yeah, must have to, you know, it carries this air of like stubbornness or whatever. And I'm just like, well, I'm like, I actually really enjoy it. Like, like, yeah, I actually feel it's hard on me not to because I feel like I'm prioritizing me because the first like three hours of my morning is always very selfishly spent on me and all the things that I enjoy. 
So if I, if I'm not stubborn air quotes in that, you know, environment, and I prioritize myself that way, you know, I'm not going to be as happy as what I can be. And I correlate that all back into like, I was born with glomerulonephritis and I was in the hospital and, you know, like I literally actually died and they brought me back to life. And, you know, they thought I'd be on dialysis. And, you know, like the last time I got an ultrasound for it, when I was like 13 or 14, like my, they're just like, it's like, you've never had it. Like there's like, there's absolutely no signs. And so I'm like, now I'm like thinking in my mind because I've never heard any of this verbiage or like this dialogue before. I'm like, well, I'm like, okay, well, I've always kind of been like stubborn, you know, or maybe like, I love what I love, you know? And that's always what I say to people. I'm like, I love the things I love, you know, and I'm willing to be able to invite new things into that environment, but I really just enjoy the things that I do. That's why I do them, you know? So then I'm like, okay, well, my kidneys kind of healed themselves on their own. We know what that was from. I don't really know. And I've always had this excess of amount of will and just really wanting to be true to like who I am, which is probably the reason why I have, I am what I am tattooed across my chest because (laughs) I just like, I, I got to a point where I was so fed up in life. Like every time I looked in the mirror, I really questioned like who I was as a person. So I'm like, I get all this criticism, but I'm like, I'm actually really happy with the person who I am. But all these people around me are being like, well, you should change. And I'd always be like, well, why? And then I just got so fed up. And every time I look in the mirror, I could read this. Like I am what I am. So I'm like, you, it's okay to be you. And then as I've got older, I realized like, it's okay. It's just the environments that you put yourself in and the people that around you, it's like, you know, it's not necessarily your issue. You don't have to take that on. So, you know, it's really like, this part is really fascinating for me personally, because I have such a connection within like multiple different areas of my life these last 37 years that, um, yeah, it really piques my interest for sure. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the last one is the hun. And the Han is associated with the liver. And one of my teachers in school um, is a Buddhist practitioner. And he was talking about it one time. And and from the Buddhist perspective, there isn't necessarily, they don't look at the, um, the individual as a soul. They look at the individual as a consciousness. And if you could say that there's one spirit that goes on from body to body, it would be the Hun. And so the Hun is anchored into the liver and it's responsible for processing and allowing us to experience anger and everything on that spectrum from irritation to hate and everything in between. And so if, there is unresolved anger, which there's a lot of unresolved anger. And it's funny, it gets masked a lot. Um, Anger masks fear and grief. And oftentimes depression and grief and fear mask anger. It's very interesting. So uh, we we know all the tricks. Why would you make me think of this? Like, you know, like how many people get angry and depressed when they drink? And we know that drinking alcohol obviously has like a very big impact on the liver. You know, so it's like when you're, when you're talking about all these things, it's really easy for me to be able to see. I'm like, oh, you know, like it's actually really common. We have like a ton of examples of these things that people are very much aware of. Yeah. Yeah. That everyone's experienced or knows someone who has. So, yeah. Um, 
the the liver so the the hun is anchored into specifically the liver blood and so we know from a western uh medicine standpoint that the liver does house a lot of blood it's like a storehouse for blood in the body and it and it filters the blood and um and in addition to detoxifying the system and whatnot and so if the blood becomes deficient or the quality of it is disrupted somehow, even if it's not measurable in Western labs, uh, from a Chinese medicine perspective, somebody may be, for example, diagnosed as blood deficient, even if they're not anemic, because they're on the spectrum of blood deficiency and they're not all the way to anemic yet, but they're getting there or they may stay where they are forever. But um, if, the, if the blood is deficient, for example, the hun cannot be fully anchored into the liver. Or if someone is feeling like really unsettled and, and just something doesn't feel comfortable to them, then they'll oftentimes have a period where they're not sleeping well. They'll wake up between one and three. Um, or if they drink, you know, if, if they have a couple glasses of wine or whatever it is, they, I have clients come in and tell me this, you know, I had a glass of wine last night and I was up at one o'clock, couldn't get back to sleep until three or four or five. And so one in three in the morning is liver time. And it's the time that the energy of the liver is at its strongest. And if it's not nourished enough, we're not gonna be able to sleep because the hun, the hun can't anchor and root properly into our liver and into the liver blood. And it, so it kind of rises up and, it, and that's what wakes us up. And so um, the, the liver is injured by anger and hate and frustration. So if you, the other thing associated with that is um, judgment. So if you're judgmental, if you're hard on other people and critical, if you're hard on yourself and self-critical, it's not just about other people, it's about us too. Like whatever we do to ourselves internally, that's also, a problem. So looking at those things, like somebody can say, oh, I'm not an angry person, but they may not even realize how many things on that sort of livery spectrum they're actually experiencing a lot of uh, on a regular basis. Um, and so that's what, you know, meditation is good for to get to know ourselves better and self-reflection and, and different self-cultivation practices, because then we get the insights and we can realize with, uh, without being attached to it or, uh, or having an aversion to realizing it even, you know, what exactly we are doing um, mentally and emotionally and behaviorally that we haven't even, you know, taken notice of before. A question that I've been mulling over in my mind and I know a lot of, there's a lot of narrative, I think, to like Western life. And I, I don't know whether there's just a better education in an Eastern um, way of life and upbringing to be able to understand these things, but how, or like, like, how was it ever that these emotions were, they have like a mate inside of us organ wise, like how would you, we would ever understand that these, these spirits attach themselves to an organ then we have these feelings as a byproduct like is there any literature on that like is it was there any like studies is it like open knowledge that we just don't know about so it just it seems 
like even in my mind like I want to be like yes I'm like but there's always like that nagging part of me like well how did somebody but then I always have to retrain my way of thinking be like well it's not somebody it's a process over thousands of years so it's not like an one individual came up one day and said you know like this spirit heart this spirit liver this spirit yeah, it's hard to say it's like it, it's in the ancient texts but it's very difficult to understand. It's easier if you have a teacher that can explain it, that's had it explained to them from their teacher and so on and so on. But even um, like when you're explaining it now, like I think if people are just willing to be open to hearing that, the way that you explain the emotions with the organ, like even if they want to not buy into like the, the Eastern spirit side of it, but just the emotion with like the organ, Mm-hmm. Like there's direct parallels there. I don't think that anybody yeah. can deny that. Like those are really easy things for us to be able to understand because we talk about them all the time and people talk about them with us all the time. Like there are things that we hear regularly. So I, I don't think there's any disputing like that side of it whatsoever. No, not at all. Because it's, there isn't any disputing anything if you've directly experienced it. Um, and in, in the meditations, that I lead, I, I take people into their own bodies to understand where they're lodging all of this stuff. Like, where is it in their body? What does their liver feel like to them? You know, and, and, you know, we even have an expression for like, if you're, if you're livery, you know, if you're feeling livery or whatever, it's, it's, it means that you're just kind of angsty and unsettled and irritable. And, um, you know, sometimes that can be because you're tired. Sometimes it can be because your liver's overtaxed. So what are you eating? What are you doing that is making it that way? Yeah. And like a really into what I'm going to pay attention to more now when I'm meditating and doing my breath work is that I've always done it just to be very mindful of what my mind is thinking about, like getting, getting past like the front cover of the book and starting to like actually get into the chapters. And that's the way I always look at it in my mind, like, once I get past the first five or 10 or 15 thoughts, like what are, what are those ones that are buried in there that are kind of clouded by all this surface area, inundated mm. Instagram, all this crap that we kind of like visually and emotionally take on, you know, and sometimes I get there in a minute or two, sometimes they just make five, 10 minutes, but like, I want to start paying attention more to like what those thoughts are and just kind of kind of like understanding like the impact, because obviously what I'm thinking and how I'm feeling is going to be a direct correlation to like what else was going on, like in my body and um, just understanding like how I kind of feel like, you know, it is like my chest feel tighter. Does my heart feel heavier? Does my stomach feel upset? You know, like, you know, do I, you know, just start kind of like walking through like these, you know, like organ related emotional, um, you know, like bridges, like I want to start to kind of understand that a little bit more because like, I know there is, it's just like, I feel like this is the inevitable next step in, you know, understanding myself a lot more and like the impact all these things are having on my body personally. Mm. Yeah. It's really good exercise. Yeah. Um, how like we did, you weren't joking when you said, where there's no way we're going to cover all these things. In, uh, in our- <laughs> um, so uh, conscious placement of objects. Mm. <laughs> so that's basically feng shui like do like when we like a, a conscious or i guess like is there a conscious and a subconscious placement placement of objects like are we unintentionally putting things in places that 
we might not realize that it's like our subconscious speaking to us, like, hey, we need this here to be able to bring oh, a little sure. bit more balance. Um, kind of, you know, maybe just like, like walk me through like your, your thought process, like anything that you've accumulated knowledge. I definitely like. think that we do that. I think that, um, yes, I think when we're setting up a room or decorating or, you know, I, I definitely think that there is an aspect of us that is tuned into the rhythm of the environment that we're in and the place on the earth that we're in and the energy of the place that we're in. And that whether we know it or not, we're going to put things places that feel good to us, right? Sometimes it just doesn't feel right to have the bed over there for some reason. So I'm going to move it this way. And even if they open a function, a person opens a feng shui book and it says the, butch, the bed should be facing this way and that way, it's much more involved than that. And so really, I think it's best for people to go with their gut and what feels good to them because they're, that way they're tuning into the flow that they're perceiving in that area and, and responding accordingly. And yeah. The, the part that I see, because like I try to really look at life and new concepts to me and see the correlation between children so like when you when you're when you were saying that I'm like you know the one thing that I know that my children have done and I see a lot of other people's children is they always have like little piles of things places you know it's like they because they're not thinking like oh this has to go in this place or like this there's this bookshelf so this book and they, yeah. they just go very like intuitively like there should be this little row of dinosaurs along my bed frame and then like right, right, right. in between the couch cushions there's all these little lego pieces and you know like they just very intuitively put things in places that like then us as adults are just like that doesn't go there clean up your junk and it's like right. but now i'm starting to think about well is that a direct representation at like a, a when we don't have all these filters in our mind about thinking like things have to be in certain places and they're just going more off like their subconscious and like their intuitive object placement. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, makes the, sense. Yeah. Um, why, why are we drawn to objects? Like why, when we see that and it, like, so your ring that you just finished making, mm -hmm. you kind of like explain, like I would, I would assume that, mm -hmm we are drawn to objects and certain objects are drawn to us because in my mind, like why would you have chose that stone to be able to make that? Uh, yeah. So I think that we're drawn to objects because of the way they make us feel. There's a Is certain- that... Go ahead. That's, that's like largely the reason. I think sometimes, especially with stones and crystals, people get drawn to things at the time that they actually need them in their life, whatever the stone represents or whatever vibration it emanates, there's an aspect of that that is necessary to bring the person more into a state of balance. And I think that they'll naturally even get drawn to things they ordinarily wouldn't be drawn to because of that. And that, that happens with foods and stuff throughout our lives too. You know, I think that there's a, this would be like one of those very big disservices of us all being in um, like a hyper urbanized environment, you know, like eliminating a lot of um, like the, the nature and the natural process to, to our life. Like, like, cause before, like it wasn't too recently in our past where like, if I wanted to travel to see anybody, even just like another, just human being or individual that 
I would have to go through an amount of nature and I may have stopped them and like, Hey, that stream, you know, looks nice. And who knows what, like the minerals may be in like that stream or like, you know, might like look up at the sun or you see like that tree might have like that, that stop and that connective experience. But when we're driving in our cars, like a hundred kilometers an hour down the highway or 60 miles per hour or anything, you know, like we're, we're missing out on so much. And like, I would assume there's not a, the greatest vibration in the concrete jungle that we live in, you know, and like, what, like, do you think that we're doing ourselves like a great disservice? Obviously we know there's a lot of benefits of being in nature, but like, is this one of them? Like how, like we can walk through like a nature scape and be drawn to something that's really going to help heal us either physically, mentally, or emotionally. Yeah, we, yeah, definitely. I feel like it's like spending a lot of time in the, in the back country myself, like I, I know I do this, but I don't know why. And I think this might be some of that like drawn to object theory where it's like, I'll just like stop or like, for some reason I have to walk across that, you know, tree that's been wind blown down or, there's just something about the color something I want to go investigate a little bit more or like I'll be walking down the path and I'll have like an intense urge just to like veer off the path and walk somewhere completely different. And I've never really been able to like understand why, but I just wonder if there's something like kind of in that. And you know what, a very good transfer to this is how you and I first started talking is like, like, I don't know why I leave your book on my coffee table. I have tons of books and it's been there like that's where I read it first that's where I always pick it up ever since you send it to me and I got it it's always been in the same place I, I, oh. I like think how long ago you sent me that book and I'll pick it up every once in a while and I'll randomly flip to some page for some unknown reason and this is what I was talking about at the beginning before we started recording right um yeah. like you know I'm like now I'm starting to be like oh like I think I am a lot more drawn to things than like what I realized it's just these are the things of being the byproduct of like the you know we're all so busy these days we lose those little things on top of never being educated on the value of those things and what they actually might be bringing to our lives we just more like question it is just like well that was silly I just did that and it's like well is it or did you actually really need to stop and experience that you know it's like everybody who has a child who's walked down the street or gone to the park with the child like you know, think of how many times they stop and want to pick something up or stop and go look at something or, you know, anything along those lines. And we always try to like inhibit that process from happening. Again, is their intuitiveness, you know, just connecting with that moment is something that just really piques their interest and it might be healing them in any kind of way or just connecting with them in any kind of way. That's true. Yeah. I think that's really important. The importance of noticing that you get drawn to things. What happens to people when they lose that? When they don't feel drawn to anything, right? When they can't tune into that, either because they devalue it or they really just, the switch to it is just so stuck in the off position. Um, Or what are all the switches that we are slowly shutting off? Because, you know, like what a lot of people would be drawn to now is just their phones, you know, and it's, you know, and like not- that's different. That's a different draw. It feels different, doesn't it? But that's what I mean, though, right? Like people, instead of going and being drawn to these other things, we have this ultra addictive, you know, like yeah, four by six thing we can hold in our hand. Where like 
from a primal standpoint, you know, like we know we're drawn to stuff like that's what these phones are, I think are kind of tapping into, but it's like in the worst possible way, you know, like it's instead of spending maybe that, you know, 10 minutes or hour outside, it's like, I'm going to cruise through my feed or, you know, I'm going to look at what other people are doing. And the irony to me, and I call people on this shit all the time is how many people I know spend time on Instagram looking up what other people are doing outside. Yeah, that's a I'm good like, point. <laughs> just go outside. You could be yeah, experiencing exactly. the same thing they're doing. Yeah. You're wasting the time living through them. And what's that taking away from you? Because like I'm I'm a friend. Like I I I believe is my personal opinion that there's no value add to a phone. Like I know I can check my banking or I can order something. I'm not talking about that kind of value. I'm like, but I don't feel like there's any actual value to like having a phone in your hand or in your pocket or anything along those that that's actually enhancing our lives in any significant kind of way. Types of taste. Mm -hmm. Sweet, salty, sour, bitter, pungent, astringent, and bland. Yes. How many through. of those are in each meal? Well, see, the thing when I read this and the reason why that I wanted to talk about it because this I've previously beat this subject to death that it irritates me to no end that food companies are allowed to hire psychologists who specialize in how to be able to create addictive and addicting combinations of food that aren't found in nature because they hit into our reward systems it's like the you know like the bar that has like sweet salty crunchy you know and like just like hitting all these pleasure systems then like the visual components the wrappers nice and like you look at all these things and it's like that's how foods become so addicting now wouldn't be bad like you said because we should have a balance of these things in our meals or in like trying to find the best way to balance all those like in our meals but all these things that we become addicted to now it's like the most unhealthy version of all of those yeah uh, sweet. What is sweet due to what, what's our, what happens in our body with like the sweet, like do, is there a direct connection and correlation with sweet? So, almost everything is actually sweet by nature from an Ayurvedic standpoint. And sweet is like the first taste that we crave when we start eating as an infant and breast milk is extremely sweet because of that. We want to encourage the baby to eat the baby wants sweet baby gets sweet and sweet is very nutritious it's very um it's anabolic it builds tissue and it's cooling and it's nurturing and it's soothing and it's um it's moistening so those are all the qualities of sweet but too much of anything is too much. Yeah. You know, and like, in the, these are the things for me, especially when it comes to sweet, because sweet is the thing that typically the majority of people have a really tough time with. But there's also a component of sweet too that would allow us to be able to be more drawn to items. Like when we had to forge a little bit more for our food all the time, because obviously there's a component of sweet that comes with a very colorful representation, you know, in nature and stuff like that too, right? It's like something that we're, we're really drawn to like at our more like primal roots. And right. you know, like that, that sweet, I know that there's no way that we can all get away from it. 
But the one thing with us eating so many sweet foods now is it's been the biggest disservice for like bitter foods because there's not a lot of people that could, but there's an extreme amount of value to bitter foods. You know, yeah. like, you know, really from like a micronutrient standpoint, just like these, these processes that happen in our body. But like, if you take how many people like, you know, bitter foods, they would, the majority of people are always going to go for this sweet. And um, what are we missing by not having bitter foods that are in our diet regularly? So bitter foods, as we know, like greens, for example, are bitter, they're considered bitter and bitter foods are really important for draining heat from the body. So or inflammation there there is um so from a an eastern medicine standpoint there are different tastes associated with the different organs in the body and so excuse me if somebody has an issue with their heart and they have too much fire in their system we'll give that person medicinals that have very bitter flavor because the bitter drains that heat and protects the heart. The heat is a fire organ, but we don't want too much heat. Um, and so Western science has found that there are actually taste receptors on the heart organ itself for bitter. So that taste is to balance out that the, the um, the tendency that organ will have, that organ will have a tendency to overheat. And so we use bitter. And the same thing with the liver, we wanna use bitter things to help drain heat from the, litter, uh, from the liver um, because the liver can overheat as well. It, it can be overworked and it is overworked with our diets and with our lifestyles. Um, and so bitter drains heat, sweet nourishes and cools. Um, and obviously it helps us feel more soothed. Carbs are very sweet, um, salty. Uh, it has an affinity to the kidneys or the kidneys have an affinity to salt. And so we know if somebody is uh, struggling with high blood pressure that we don't want them to eat too much salt because we don't want them to have the sodium um, in excess. And this brings in the concept of processed foods and avoiding concept of processed foods entirely because processed foods are loaded with sodium, but not necessarily with salt, which is why they don't necessarily taste salty. And we may need to add more salt to it because we're not getting the chloride in the sodium chloride, which is salt that makes the uh, sodium so tasting. We're just getting the sodium in the processed food. And so, um, and that creates an instability in the body. We need the salty taste. It does tonify the kidneys, but we don't want too much of that either. Um, and so then there's sour and sour has an affinity to the liver and the liver likes sour because we don't want the liver to get stiff and hard. We want the liver to be supple, supple and moist and able to move really well. The liver does so many things in the body and if there's a rigidity to it, either energetically or physically, there's a problem. So there is a, this is just an example. There's a Chinese formula called free and easy wanderer. And it's the primary formula we'll give women that have um, PMS symptoms. So when they get cranky and irritable and emotional and um, whatnot and other things before their period, we'll give them this formula. And there's an herb in this formula 
that has a very sour nature and it goes to the liver and it helps to keep the liver soft. So when we are not feeling like a free and easy wanderer through life, when we're feeling rigid and stuck and tight, then we need that softening of that tissue in order for it to kind of breathe in a sense. And so that's what sour does. It helps to kind of um, soften and squeeze out that tissue. And then we have, so sweet, sour, salty, bitter, pungent is warming and it helps to clear things up and out. So think about wasabi, pungent, clears everything out, clears your sinuses out. Um, has a garlic is like that for me too, garlic, like just eating yeah. raw garlic. Yeah. Yeah. Garlic is pungent, raw onions. So uh, chili peppers, hot peppers, they're all, they're all pungent. So those things have their purpose as well. We want to vent things. We want to open the pores every now and then. Um, we want to stimulate uh, the mucosal linings to activate. So that's pungent uh, pepper, black pepper even. And so then there is um, astringent, which is more of an Ayurvedic taste. And astringent is very interesting because it's a combination of two very opposite things. It's a combination of um, space and earth out of the five elements. And so uh, astringent is similar to sour in the way we might perceive it, but it actually is drying and um, and sort of like heavy instead of sour, which is moistening and heavy. And so it's like astringent is like drying and light, but it's also heavy. So things we might want astringency for are, um, holding, holding fluids in place in the body, holding tissues in place in the body. That's what we use astringent herbs for, for example, pomegranate has an astringent flavor to it. Um, as part of its flavor profile. And then there's bland. And so bland is kind of like the ideal uh, taste uh, dynamic, which is not very dynamic to us at all. But if we're able to uh, like acclimate to bland foods, we find that there's actually quite a bit of flavor in them. And there's a lot of sweet in them. We can taste the natural saltiness of things, but it's very hard for us to eat bland foods and not feel like we're missing out on something. But if we can, if we are healthy and we are eating bland foods, then um, it, it bland is more, a, the, a better word for it would be purity. And so like in the blue zone diets, they're, they're many of the foods that are incorporated into like those blue zone areas where people live a very long time and they live well for a very long time are that they're not overly doctored up, that they're kept in their purest state and they're fresh and they're sourced locally and all of that. So that would be considered more along the lines of land. And, and I, I would draw the parallel too that it's the reason why that people don't value uh, bitter because of sweet it's like we also don't value bland because it's sweet too because like it's hard to be able to pick out the subtleness of the flavors in more bland foods because especially nowadays we're having such this 
flavor explosion that if we don't have that same flavor explosion, like it must be super blind, but like, you know, we can tap into when we scale it back on like the flavor explosions in our mouth, you know, like we can start to appreciate some of these other, you know, tastes and even textures and stuff too. Like I know you always get like a lot of people who kind of put up a wall against certain textures and stuff, you know, like we have like this very dysmorphic view of what food looks like, what it tastes like, what it feels like, what it visually like is to us and all that kind of stuff. And it's, uh, it's hard to appreciate all these different categories of them. My question with this is though, that when there wasn't a time when there was like a lot of like preservation of foods or, you know, like a wave, like we didn't have fridges and we didn't have like grocery stores to go through and trucking stuff from all around the world. How would we have tapped into these when we didn't have access to fresh version, is that how herbs kind of came around and a little bit more into play or like? Oh, what? I don't know the whole answer to that, but I do know that there are several growing seasons in India, for example. So there's always stuff being harvested. Um, and then there's like the pickling and all of that's the fermentation. So, um, and then, you know, and the microbes in the gut change at different times of year too. So depending on the season, what's available is actually what your body has adapted to digest more readily. So we might have to have an abundance of one taste at a certain time of the year because that's what's available. Um, and that's okay because the body is adapted to, to deal with that at that time of the year. Um, people also didn't used to live as long. Um, as we do now. And, um, and, and so because we have more access to these things now, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean we should be running out and eating every single one of them. So it's like, here's the guidelines on taste, but can we incorporate this information into what season it is and into where we are living? What are we doing? Cause that was actually, I'm glad that you segued into that because it, it's actually one of the new um, points that I wanted to bring up was that what is the disservice that we're doing to our body's harmony by not eating as close to in season as we can? And like, I feel like the only thing that people really, I see eat in season is just like some fresh fruit that might be like, you know, when strawberries are fresh in season, it's right. like, I'm going to eat like some strawberries right. or like, but right. there's not a lot, like people don't search out for a lot. It's just like these really high rewarding fresh thing, you know, maybe like corn or strawberries cherries and kind of peaches just like these things that are grown in quantity and then we see this stand and it's like oh fresh bc peaches you know like from the okanagan and bring them down and everybody starts like making those but like what, what are we doing like systematically year after year by not eating as close to in season as we can i th i just think that we're confusing our bodies that's that's the main thing you know there are a lot of inflammation that would result from that it's possible, yeah, absolutely. Because when the body gets confused, it doesn't work. When you get confused, you don't work as well, <laughs> right? You know, I know I don't. And so um, it's just kind of, it's sending confusing messages. It's like you say thing one thing one time and then, oh, okay, but I'm gonna do this instead. Or if you grew up eating seasonally and then you get into a bad routine or a more, a less healthy routine as you, um, you know, move out into the world and you're going to school or you're working and you're eating more fast food and eating on the run and stuff like that, then 
it's like the body's like what and it adapts but it's not optimal so that actually brings up i asked somebody this the other day when i was talking to them do you think that it's a disservice or a service that our bodies are so hyper adaptable think it's a service but i think i also think that our bodies are adaptable and we don't listen to them as closely as we ought to for our own good and oftentimes we think what's our own good but actually we need to check in with ourselves because like the reason why i was posing that question is because it's like when we have ailments, like when us as human beings have these ailments and they can be very dead. They say if you have, you know, type two diabetes and you're doing nothing, you know, diet, lifestyle, anything to be able to help course correct this. And we know this, we know what the outcome is going to be, but we'll keep walking down that because our body keeps slowly adapting to it. You know, it'll catch up to us one day. But like, I feel like if there was just like a little bit more of like a wall that we could get to, that's maybe not like I lose my leg or depth or you know, blind, but like yeah. just something that, because what we've proven in Western culture is that like, we're willing to be 60 pounds overweight. We're willing to be able to live with heart disease. We're willing to be able to live with diabetes. We're willing to be able to live with unnecessary strokes and heart attacks and like, going around in a wheelchair you know like the the part that actually broke my heart once is like I was driving down the road with my oldest daughter and she was really young still and um she's seeing this person in a motorized wheelchair and when she's seen him she said she's just like that she's like oh I would love like like basically like how do I do that like that's oh way better God. than walking and so, but I could see, I think she was like three or four at the time. Like she was really young, but I was just like, oh, see, like, this is the problem. You know, like it's like, we see these things, they become so normalized because like our bodies become adaptive. And then now I speed that up in today's time. And I'm like, think how many personal modes of transportation there are. There's these like unawheel things. There's these like kind of flare your leg out things. There's like 20 different kinds of scooters. There's there's a semi-manual version of that man that actually had to physically be in that wheelchair, but it was, you know, what looked to be, you know, well, I don't want to be judgy like that. Just there's a man in, in this wheelchair. Um, but now all of these things that had a manual component now are all electric. There's an electric version of all of them. So I'm like, what she said then, like, this is so awesome, which was really worrisome to me i'm like this is what we see and like the same reaction that you just had but i'm like now you see there's motorized skateboards there's motorized scooters there's motorized bikes they're like we're there it's just it's a different wheelchair but we're still now all kind of willingly getting into the wheelchair yeah. you know because we have like these hyper adaptive bodies that allows us to be able to get away with way more than like what we should you know, and yeah. I feel like a lot of that before was because we needed that simply just to survive. Like I might go four days without food. So my body needs to be able to adapt, right. to be able to go four days without food. Like exactly. I might not have clean drinking water for a couple of days. My body needs to be able to learn how to be able to adapt that. Like our, our bodies have adapted for this a lot more natural process. That's why like all these processes have like a, a pretty good, you know, um, 
hormonal effect. Like there's a lot of positive that can come out of fasting and, you know, like just like these different things we may not want to do it all the time, but you know, like there's, there's a positive to the negative. But when we're riding around on like a motorized scooter, because we've now got too lazy to like use our leg, like there's no positive, there's no positive to that negative. Like the only positive maybe to that negative is that you're outside, you know, but the one thing that my daughter (laughs) went through like six months of loving is she's just like, she's like, oh, I love playing tennis on my Wii or whatever the Nintendo thing is with the Mm -hmm. handle. And I'm like, well, do you just want to go play tennis? And she's like, no. And I'm like, oh, and then she was just like, she's like, dad, the bowling is awesome. And I'm like, well, do you just want to go bowling? And she's like, no, she's like, I like this version better. So I'm like, I see like how we, you know, like this, this natural genetic or this natural process in our body that allows us to be able to get through life. Like we're using it to like such a disadvantage now, Yeah, that's a really you know, good and point. like, you know, even like what you were saying, you know, like with, with like eating, it's just like getting away from like like more seasonal eating, like our season is every season all the time, but we don't even take advantage of that. They're like, I'll just take the KFC or like, you know, like we've now made the, like the wheelchair scooter analogy with like the stuff you could be buying from the grocery store, but you go to McDonald's instead. Yeah. The people was like, well, they put lettuce on my, you know, burger and McDonald's claims that this is like really great beef. Like, you know, like A&W is using 100% pure Canadian beef. And it's like, you keep on believing that. Like, if that's where you're at and that's where you want to go with it, that's fine. But like, we've we've made all these parallels to like this man in this motorized wheelchair. So we're just taking like all of this stuff and really oversimplifying our lives because we can get away with all of it. But is that kind of where we're at today? We're like, you know, with like, especially with like COVID-19 and I'm glad that we've made it this far without even saying COVID-19, but it's like, this is the stark realization that there's, you know, about three comorbidity factors with all these COVID-19 cases, but nobody's really talking about it. It's like, is the vaccine just the motorized wheelchair when we should be running, which is like, if we just encouraged people to be a little bit healthier, would have this ever been relevant? Would any of this ever been relevant if, you know, like, you know, arguably 80 or some percent of people who ended up hospitalized had, you know, um, up to two or three comorbidity factors, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on the stats there and stuff, but it's like, is that, is this now the realization of the, all of these environments where like, we're riding around on electric bikes because we can't pedal them anymore. You know, we're eating instead of eating out of season because we have all the season, except to us, we're going to go to McDonald's instead. Like just all of these components to our life now where like, are we not getting away with it anymore? Because as Steven is starting to affect our, our mental health, right. You know, like, like I was completely on board at the beginning of all this when it said like, well, people are being stuck now, you know, um, with all these mental health issues because they've lost their jobs. And like, and I'm just like, yeah, there is a huge component of that. But subsequently, there's not a lot of people who chose to do anything really positive with like that time either. You know, like there wasn't a lot of people that, you know, lost, you know, 20 pounds if they need to lose 40. There wasn't, you know, people who chose to go outside more. It was just kind of like hibernate inside, you know, even if you had the option of like going into your backyard or, you know, something along those lines. Like even when we had like, this crux in life of saying like, I can choose now to spend this time 
to be healthy like we didn't. We allowed our mental health to get so bad. Our suicide rates, our alcohol consumption rates, our domestic abuse rates, you know, like all these things skyrocketed. So even like, again, at like this, this perfect time when we're faced with this reality of like, can we just try to get the wheels back on the bus? We just perpetuated the same motorized scooter, you know, like McDonald's. And instead, the main message is, how do we get back to normal? Right? That's, the, that's been the main message. I just want to get back to normal. And, and, that, and that's the scary part to me, too. Is like, if, when people are saying, I'm like, our normal wasn't working. I don't know why everybody's so like, I can't wait to get back to how life used yeah, to be. And I'm I like, can't wait to have all the expectations on me to work, you know, 50 hours a week with no break and no, <laughs> no uh, vacation pay. You know, I can't, I can't wait to, to what, to say yes to things I don't actually want to do and to not sleep at night and to overwork my, you know, like who wants that? But that's part of what normal was. So why? So you, so for what? That's not. Well, and the, these are things and like this was this is like where I feel it was like the, the greatest missed opportunity. And it's like, I feel that if corporate America is going to give us one great thing out of all this instead of where we've kind of gone with corporate America, if corporate America is going to give us one great gift, it's like, yes, you guys work from home spend more time with your families. Don't commute an hour yeah. or two hours right. to and from work every day. Like, you know, like, yeah, you know, like sleep in with your kids, you know, go to their soccer games, you know, like, you know, be at home where you can cook yourself a meal at home and have access to like, you know, healthier food, like all of these things. If that, if that's what could be this man, you know, maybe that's the little bit of course, correct. Instead I'm hearing, Oh, I have to start going back into the office again. And even traveling for work too, right? Like I know a lot of people yeah. who travel for work. There's like, oh, about to ramp back up into the traveler team because I'm double vaccinated now. And, you know, like, you know, we have an office in Toronto and New York and, you know, like, and we have stuff overseas and it's just like ramp right back up, you know, and into this same old model that really got us into this exact same place that we're, we're in right now. And, you know, like, us as being creatures of habit again like we're creatures of habit because we needed to wake up every day and kind of keep walking down that path because there might be something to eat or drink there you know these creatures of habit where i just like you know gotta have like this coffee with this slumped down head with the shoulders turned in and walk into the car and you know hate my life driving through an hour and a half of traffic to get to a job that i don't like to be able to not spend any time with the people that i'm supposed to love more than anything else in this world right so I was trying so hard to keep the COVID talk out of it. Um, well, and one, yeah. And one of the things I wanted to cover, but you already did at the beginning was just um, breath. And I did read it like in your book too. When I went back and looked at it, it was that um, how we're not supposed to breathe deep. Because I know that breath work is, is such a big topic right now. Um, and I've had people ask me about like why we shallow breathe all the time if all we ever try to do is focus on breathing deeper whenever we're doing like mindful breath work, like why doesn't our body just do that all the time? And I know there's a little bit of snippet in your book about saying that like, we're actually not supposed to breathe deep all the time or like shallow breathing in your chest um, is okay. You know, maybe kind of fill me in a little well, bit. Well, because the, 
it's a difference between, I think shallow breathing gets confused and lumped in with fast breathing. So we might feel like we're breathing more shallowly at rest, but it, it's if we're relaxed and if we are naturally breathing well, most of the time, then that shallow breath is going to be using different muscles to happen and it's not going to be a fast breath. And like, the, like a, what is the advantageous reason of like, the long, deep, mindful breaths. And like, are you a six in, six out, five in, five out? Like <laughs> It depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, if you're trying to settle your nervous system down and come out of fight or flight, then you'll want to do those longer, deeper breaths because you want to get the diaphragm moving. You want to massage the vagus nerve so that it calms you down. Um, Yogis say that the more times you breathe in a lifetime, it actually shortens your lifetime. So why did they say that? Why did they say that? Because they recognize the link between the stress and the shallow breathing and using accessory breathing muscles. And they recognized that what that does to your metabolism, it increases inflammation. It creates things like chronic illness like diabetes and, and things along those lines um and it's the breathing is a reflection of what's happening physiologically but if one is able to take slower breaths throughout their life then physiologically they're in better shape now when it comes to like doing breath work is is it depending what's happening like emotionally in your body versus time of day or is there like like what's kind of a, a moment where we should be okay this is happening I should focus a little bit more on these like these deeper breaths is it just really kind of anxiety related you know like when we feel like we need to like calm ourselves down or like is there like a is it better in the morning better in the evening or is it just more situationally dependent to us i would do more relaxed breathing i wouldn't like do a cleansing breath in the evening before bed for example so relaxed breathing is good then and mindful breathing but it's good anytime i mean if you're somebody who's sitting at a desk like this eight hours a day in order to take a, a mindful breath you're going to need to do this instead. So I tell people that have desk jobs, have a mnemonic, whether it's your phone rings or you get a text or you set an alarm for every 45 minutes that you sit and you take a couple of breaths because that whole posture change is really important. Um, you know, I see people that sit like this all the time and I'm they're spending lots of money on acupuncture because of neck pain and it's because of this and the shallow breathing. And so, um, yeah, so you can really, it depends on the person really and what their lifestyle is. Um, before we wrap this up, I want you to talk about your, your jewelry a little bit and like, you know, how people, if they, are you selling it? And if you are like, uh, how do yeah. people get it? Like, like buildings, yeah. let's try to drum some so business up things, your way. <laughs> so one of the things that I did during the pandemic, once I got over myself was, um, I started to make jewelry and so doing silversmithing and goldsmithing and I 
always been, you know, I've always been interested in energy medicine and in crystal healing and stuff like that. So I know a lot about stones in high school. I've worked in a jewelry store for like five years. And, um, so I've, it's something I've always been interested in, but I don't know why I never actually did it. And so I started doing it this year. I started making stuff. And so, uh, I've got my graphic designer, uh, just put together a logo for me and she's making me a website. And so I'm calling my jewelry business, Bridget Jude designs, Bridget. And then Jude is my middle name. And, um, and so it's all sterling silver and gold and, um, mostly semi-precious stones, some precious stones, they're all precious, <laughs> but they're really high quality and they're ones that really speak to me. So my ideal situation is to be able to make things for people where they, um, they're either picking out the stone or I'm helping them pick out the stone. And then I just am able to kind of do what the stone feels like it wants. Like if the person wants a pendant, I might use just silver or I might there are many decorative elements and ways that you can make something, but my style's very, very kind of free form and flowy. It's not, it, and, and it's not like a high-end jewelry store, like perfectly symmetrical with, you know, $10,000 diamonds or anything like that. It's more um, organic and etheric and flowy. And I like, um, like ancient jewelry and it's, it's modeled on some of that and um yeah so awesome how can people order it so right now before i get the website the website will be bridgetjudedesigns.com but um the um right now i'm on facebook bridget jude designs is my page and on instagram bridget jude designs and so this is the one i made today i finished today i should say it's awesome. a sleeping beauty turquoise. Yeah. So, I mean, it's got a lot, it, it just, like you said, why are people drawn to objects and it, and it, you know, sometimes it makes you feel good. Sometimes it, um, it just really, it boils down to making you feel good, regardless of what the reason is, whether you're drawn to it because it's got healing qualities or because it reminds you of, of some fond memory or a person or whatever it is. So, Awesome. Well, congratulations on the new business venture and really look yeah. forward to hearing all your success. Thank you. Yeah. Thank appreciate you for coming it. on today. Really appreciate it as always. Yes. Thank you for having me.